Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. On today's episode, we are going to be talking to the Swedish journalist Katrine Marcel about her new book, Mother of Invention. But before that, thank you as always to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. And that not only helps uh, us keep making the podcast, obviously, but you get access to exclusive series like Tips for Existence and uh, Robin's new work in progress shows a billion thoughts and lots of other goodies as well. So do check that out. You'll also find out uh, about something very special um, that we're going to announce tomorrow. I know I said uh, in the intro last week, if you listened to that, that we would announce it last Friday. But uh, some things happened, which means or which meant that we couldn't announce it on that Friday, but we can announce it on this Friday, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day of the release. If not, you probably already know. If you can't support us on Patreon, that is fine. Uh, rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast. I think you can review things on Acast. I'm not sure. Uh, that would be great. That helps us out as well. Enough waffling and rambling from me. Let's get on to today's episode and drop you into the middle of a conversation with Robin and Josie and Katrine. So let's talk about Mother of Invention, how good ideas get ignored. And this is such a, what I love about this book, this is a, a, a book which is looking really about the way that uh, I suppose one could almost generously call it a patriarchal society. I'm sure there are uh, more uh, deserved uh, and more insidious words for that uh, in terms of how the, a male skewed society gets in the way of innovation uh, and, and almost falls into these horrible traps of just like we hear so often said nowadays about, I mean, a man can't be a man anymore. And oh, so... God. I mean, you start off with a beautiful, quirky story, which is you cover many great and important innovations, but you start off with the wheeled suitcase, which I just think is a fantastic place to start. Yes, thank you. I mean, it's it's fascinating, and it's a story that... I mean, the story of why we managed to put two men on the moon before we managed to put wheels on suitcases is this sort of classic mystery of innovation that many economists have thought about and had different theories about. And I was researching it, actually, or looking into it when I was doing research for this book and kind of stumbled upon the real answer to this question. You know, why did it take us, you know, 5,000 years from the invention of the wheel to, you know, finally screw these things onto suitcases and realize that this was a, you know, a good idea? And that reason has to do with gender. I mean, what I found in newspaper archives was these suitcases with wheels that existed long before the the real and official invention of the rolling suitcase by a, an American inventor called Bernard Sadov in, in 1972. But all of these suitcases were these niche products for, for women and they never took off. And what I found was that there was this huge and very gendered resistance against 
rolling a suitcase, which is actually the explanation to why it took so long. You know, this idea that no man would ever roll a suitcase and, you know, women might, but hey, women don't travel alone anyway, so they're not a big enough market. God. Yeah, the idea, well, if you're traveling, you should have a man with you. So where's the problem? Yeah, and he then has to prove his masculinity by carrying your bags. See, I'm still annoyed because I think the wheeled suitcase is a terrible invention. Because, Why? Because people don't think about what they're packing. They pack too much stuff. <laughs> that's that, that, that's my thing. Is I, I'm I'm someone who has always been. You know, I, I spend a lot of time, or used to spend a lot of time traveling. <laughs> I see too many. You know, that bit where you have to. And to me in particular, Josie, you know, I carry a lot of books and I suffer you from do? sciatica. So in some mm-hmm. ways, I should go. I want a wheeled suitcase. But in another way, I go. I deserve the sciatica for the bibliomania that uh, is 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 my life. Well, so this is actually bound up in some sort of complex self-flagellation. That's the whole book collecting thing is ultimately down to that. I've, <laughs> I've, I've been to a Freudian. She's doing a lot of analysis at the moment. Um, but I was one of the stories that I love in it is, it is something that no longer translate in terms of us. When you talk about, you know, you're not expecting in a chapter about wheeled suitcases to see the importance of the legend of King Arthur and the story of, of Lancelot. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Because this is, as you say in the book, this would mean nothing to anyone reading this now would have no idea of this, the, the emasculation of a cart. Yes, it's it's one of the the stories, and I actually found it because because my son is obsessed with <laughs> with knights and the knights of the Round Table, and and um, and I found this this story, and the story goes something like this you know Lancelot is out looking for Guinevere which he's always doing right that's that's what he does and he can't find her and suddenly he meets this this uh, dwarf and this dwarf says that he can tell him where she is his great love is but then he has to step onto this cart that the the dwarf is is driving Um, and Lancelot is reluctant and in the end he does step onto the cart now, for you know, a modern reader, this is just like, well, why doesn't he? Why does he hesitate? You know, this is great. He, you know, he's lost his horse. He gets to ride on this cart, and the dwarf will tell him where his great love is. That's great. But what you have to understand is this sort of these sort of ideas about that wheels were somehow unmanly were very very present. For a knight to not be on a horse but to sort of ride on a cart was one of the most shameful things he could do. And that sort of was obviously at the back of people's mind when, you know, at the time when they when they read this poem. And today we don't understand it because, you know, we've gotten over that particular, you know, idea about masculinity and we're happily rolling our suitcases. Well, it's so interesting because to me it shows how conditional these ideas are, like how, you know, again, sorry, it's such an obvious example, but it's like that pink was a colour given to boys 100 years ago. And it frustrates me even more because when these things are in use, they're so oppressively kind of um, uh, rolled out. And then suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, I guess that's nothing to do with anything. Yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, of course, exactly. Of course, it's manly to have a car. Great, yeah. you know, and, and even that is like it highlights what a waste it all is. Exactly. No, it's the randomness of so many of these things, and that's also what readers of the book, you know, have have told me is that they can find it slightly sort of frustrating to read mm. it because you're just like. Argh. But how do you feel having researched so heavily and um, and written it yourself? Like, do you, did it make you feel ultimately more optimistic because of? 
how much will be out there and 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 how much kind of hopefully better things could be yeah i mean i thought i'd written this really hopeful optimistic story and then it sort of when it came out in in sweden before it came out here in in the uk and and people really didn't read it as <laughs> <laughs> hopeful and optimistic story they said you know it made them really angry and that's not at all how I you know thought of it you know I mm. thought that exactly by showing the randomness of these things and showing how blinded we are by these things that then eventually you know go go away you know I would sort of you know you know just show people what's what's possible but but no they, they got really pissed off instead <laughs> well I was I was thinking that when you mentioned that you know the wheel suitcase came and this is you know the week we're recording this is is the the 52nd anniversary of the moon landings and, and what a week the... to celebrate with the horrific space journeys of three terrible billionaires no but everyone's had a lovely time because if you're gonna have a rocket that looks that much like a penis everyone's happy <laughs> you know what you've got to you've got to take what you can and and the one joy of it is i was going to ask about wally funk wally funk who was in 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 the group of women who was training to be an astronaut in the early 1960s and then suddenly they just went nah this isn't going to happen, even though people like Wally Funk were you know, incredible. You look at their test results in anything. It was nothing to do with uh, intellect, stamina, any of those things. And it's something that I think about a lot is how different would it have been if a woman had stood on the moon? That how much does that, as that is seen as one of the, the you know, probably one of the greatest human achievements of the 20th century. For one of those Apollo astronauts to be a woman seems to change things an enormous amount and perhaps enough to make people quite, you know, disconcerted by those things. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it would have would have mattered. And also, it, it could, I mean, if the Soviets had made it to the moon before the Americans, you know, which, which, which could have happened. I mean, they had female cosmonauts like Valentina Tereshkova and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, having women as astronauts was, was one of the, you know, things that was, was going on in, in the Soviet space program that the Americans were, were not looking at. I mean, they looked at everything else as much as they could. But so, yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it would have mattered. And, and I, I agree with you that that image of, of her this week was, was powerful. What for you was the most, as you started researching, what was the thing that took you like aback the most? Was it was the one thing in particular you just thought, this is just incredible that such a, what could be considered to be a mild and preposterous piece of cultural behaviour can have such enormous ramifications <laughs> of, uh, in terms of innovation that will benefit everyone? Well, I think I think it probably was electric cars. Uh, I mean, so I talk about it in the book. Um, you know, at the dawn of the automobile era, we had, you know, we had electric cars already then. We had electric cars, we had petrol-driven cars, we had cars, you know, using steam technology and all these different types of technologies were competing. And then <laughs> people um, started perceiving, particularly in the US, which became the most important, you know, automobile market, they started perceiving electric cars as feminine. Because... Oh God! <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Not even dangerous, not unreliable, <laughs> not um, inferior in the technology. Just 
for oh god it's unbearable <laughs> i mean they had other problems too i mean they were not great you know for for driving cross cross country or you know the road network wasn't was it what it was today and they were not very good outside of sort of urban environments but they were you know pretty you know really good in urban environments but this idea that oh here's a car that you don't have to sort of risk breaking your wrist by cranking it going you know it's more comfortable it's quiet it doesn't make noise it's not smelly oh it has to be for women that was was really strong and they came to be project developed with with women in mind and you look at the ads of of the time i mean they're amazing these sort of you know fancy women in big hats getting into electric cars but the, the thing that really, you know, made me sort of bang my head onto the desk was when I read about, you know, that electric cars were the first ones to be created with a roof because there was an idea that having a roof on your car was unmanly. Oh, God. But also this idea that I'll never stop cranking the car. How else will people know how strong I am? Like, yeah, and it's, and it's obviously, I mean, it's it's terrible for... <laughs> You know, it make, makes you think of how, how hard it is must be also to be a man and this sort of, course, of manliness of that constantly has to be proven and uh, and how ideas about masculinity is often sort of taken more seriously than, you know, death itself in, in, uh, in our culture. Um, I mean, because these sort of uh, associations between electric car technology and women that ended up holding back the size of the electric car market and actually contributed to us then building a whole world for petrol-driven technology. Wow. And also the fact that cars still retain that kind of macho sphere around them. Like I'm thinking of the worst programme in the world, Top Gear, the absolute worst <laughs> television programme on earth, and about how they still, you know, perpetuate like, of course, it's men who love cars, that's what they're there for. You know, like, yeah. actually, we could have a world where it was just like, what's the most... Uh, efficient form of transport we could have yeah. as it is just transport <laughs> and that's I mean uh, I mean that's what's really serious I mean it's easy to sort of talk about these historic examples and laugh about maybe or get angry about how people in the past couldn't sort of look beyond ideas about gender and therefore you know couldn't see that these innovations from you know um, suitcases with wheels to electric cars were, were good ideas but what I argue in the book is that it's still happening and particularly around things like sustainability where we have a lot of similar ideas that I believe will look just as ridiculous in in the future you know real men have to eat meat you know real men don't go on public transport um you know and so on and oh, so on jesus this is terrible news for me i've never learned to drive <laughs> and, it's and i'm a vegetarian <laughs> and until now i had thought i was alpha this has become <laughs> quite a shock to me josie well, you are just ignore what i said very very <laughs> alpha you're an alpha male of the book yeah. podcasting world and that can't be taken away from you but I, I find that really interesting because I do think now with quite often when you see the anger over over, for instance, pronoun use or you see the <laughs> anger when we see things about kind of, you know, non-binary issues. And and it does seem that, you know, some of the things you read in the book, you think, oh, yeah, there is some progress. And in other ways, you go still being so rooted to the a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And somewhere... It it just feels that 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 is going to and I and I think of the attitude towards you know again attitudes towards people like Greta Thunberg and people like, where you go well so much of this is about you know how dare she, mm. um, 
And it seems like that we have such an enormous way to still go, to just go, because that's what I love about when you talk to, you know, my, my, my son's 13 and a lot of the kids, are there, they, they're not really very bothered by so many of these issues and it seems like they are the first generation to have quite a large number of them not just the quirky kids but loads of kids just going yeah it's fine oh yeah 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 cecily's non-binary now is she yeah yeah yeah. she's non-binary you know all of that they suddenly have a, a, a new language which seems to be removing some of the kind of you know the previous very specific binary definitions yeah, no, things do change. But I mean, before we go into that, let me just say that, you know, as a Swede, I must say that your pronunciation of Geta Thunberg was, was really, really good because so many, <laughs> so many people in here in the UK say Thunberg and I'm on like a private mission to correct every single one of them. And I was I'm just, proud of you. you know, getting ready to correct you and you said it, you know, perfectly. So congratulations. Um, but it's this sort of deeper thing which I think profoundly affects our economies that we pick out these random things and we say we say they are they are feminine and then we always devalue them and then we have this this I this sort of and then we define technology throughout history as you know whatever men have done and that's another mm. thing i talk about in the book which i think is important to to point out is this sort of you know how this has affected the whole sort of history of innovation and how we see it that you know we think now that you know women were you know all the great innovations were were done by men but the problem is you know which i talk about in the book is that when women have innovated or women have done things it has never been considered to be technology you know we talk about the bronze age and the iron age but not about the pottery age or the um or the flax age you know because technology is associated with women we don't see them as technologies um so these are sort of some really deep things and and i i i'm not sure there's anywhere in the world where where this doesn't you know hasn't exist. been the case i would love if there somehow were places that had escaped that way of categorizing things. But I think maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part because I'm like frustrated <laughs> about it as a woman. Or, um... I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe they are, but, but also when you're sort of looking at these things, you're interested in like the main narrative because yeah. that's the one shaping our economies. Yeah, truly. When you, in terms of some of the stories in this did you find that you know was most of it almost hiding in plain sight or did you find that some of it you really had to dig down to find that the, the it had become a really hidden history yeah i i'm certainly and i mean most of this is so hidden that you know it will never make it into a book i mean it's um i could only find the things that you know the sort of the exceptions you know innovations associated with women that you know had made it but i mean like you know like i talk about uh, about the financial system and you know all the huge problems women have to get funding for for their ideas i mean most of this is about you know women having ideas that you know never never turn into anything and that's what's so sad was there, is, is there a, if there was one thing that you particularly kind of, the, the, the one story where you felt the 
greatest sense of of tragedy to be forgotten or was it just something that you felt was over the whole thing which is all of these people whose innovations are sometimes stolen uh sometimes well it turns out they're married to this man so let's just say that he did it because that would make it much easier because no one will believe a woman's made this clever thing i mean you know there's so many different that's what i found so interesting that there's so many different ways of removing someone's rights to claim their own creativity Mm, mm. I mean, I guess the the part of the book that has sort of, you know, most sort of personal meaning to me is about sort of computer programmers, really, because, you know, for the simple fact that my mother is or was a computer programmer and uh, and I so what I talk about in the book is how how this was a a profession that went from female dominated to to male dominated and and basically how sort of tech keeps to be defined as whatever men do i mean computer programming used to be compared to knitting or you know if you're good at cooking from a recipe then go into computer science and and i'm not that old i'm 38 years old and you know when my mother was a computer programmer in you know, when I was a child, almost all of her managers were were women. And what she did was not considered to be tech because, you know, when something is female dominated by by definition, it's not technology, right? Um, and then all of this changed, you know, during my lifetime. And at the same time as, as you know, as computer science went from, went from female dominated to male dominated, you know, it also went from sort of low status to high status and low pay to to high pay. And so that that had personal meaning to me. And also, I mean, as somebody who writes about economics, it's it's fascinating, this phenomenon, how status and pay seems to follow men in the economy in this way. And now today we have these huge sort of, you know, oh, let's attract women to to STEM fields and let's have more women in tech, you know, big conferences with pink balloons falling from the ceiling. And we've kind of forgotten that women invented software. You know, it's, you know, in not that long ago. So yeah, that that was frustrating. Is there a view that somehow women are to do with the past and men are to do with the future? Is that something that you found? Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, what what I do talk about in the book, and which I think is is what I think about it is that there's this idea that, you know, a skill if a man you know has a skill it's like it's technical it's something he has acquired while if a woman is good at something we are very often seeing it as you know natural right um you know it's something to do with the body and if something is is natural and not technical then you know the economic logic dictates why should we pay them so much i mean like midwives and doctors is interesting that whole distinction you know that what the midwife do is like Oh, they just there's some kind of natural female thing. They're just able to perform these extremely complicated maneuvers where they're like twisting the baby out. But it's it's not technical. And what doctors do is, and I mean, and I talk about in the book how you know midwives were literally banned from you know in law uh, from using um, tools made from metal, you know, to prevent their skills to be you know become technical or become perceived as technical. And also with no thought to what was best for the person no. giving birth, with no thought whatsoever. No. Oh gosh, I, I mean, I it's a, it is it must be frustrating for you because, as you say, you were writing a book that is hopeful and excited, and it is so hard 
I feel as a woman to talk about these things without being like, not again, <laughs> like and everything. And, and so I suppose, how do you kind of deal with this sense that as a society in the past, there's been such loss? Hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is sad. And I've actually had, you know, women having quite emotional reactions almost to the book. And I think it comes from this, I mean, this like the subtitle is, you know, how good ideas get ignored. And yeah. I think that experience of not being heard, of having your, you know, your creativity and your ideas, you know, literally being ignored, you know, that, and that experience of as soon as something is perceived as feminine, we devalue it. If, you know, if women are seen to like this, then men can't have it. I mean, I think that is something Something, I mean, I write about it as something shaping our economy, but I think it also is something really shaping women's lives in a way yeah. that can be quite painful. Yeah. Did you have a battle over the title at all? Because I was thinking we had uh, Pragya Agarwal uh, on talking about her book, uh, Motherhood or Motherhood, or we had some mm. debate over exactly how to pronounce the title, but the contents are wonderful. Um, and she was talking about the fact that men don't read books by, by women according to a lot of the kind of research um, and I wondered whether looking at the title Mother Invention How Good Ideas Are Ignored whether that in an economy built for men whether there was any debate as whether oh god would this mean that an enormous part of the audience will be fascinated in this I, I'm, I'm always intrigued by these different things where you just find that just means oh well that turns out a huge audience are, are just going oh it's not meant for me is it yeah um, and I guess I just feel okay fine <laughs> you know don't read it then <laughs> Um, I mean, I, what happened in Sweden, though, was was interesting. So the title is slightly different with this has to do with with other things. But but I was not um, expecting so many men to read the book uh, in Sweden as they did. And it really kind of became a bestseller on the back of, you know, white male Swedish engineers who ended up reading the book and really loving it. I mean, at least, and, you know, writing to me and uh, and well, finally, somebody writes about this, um, which was great, but it was also very, very unexpected. Um, my publicist there kind of expected this because she did this campaign um, around Father's Day for the book. Uh, and I was like, that's never going to work. But uh, but it did work. And the book sort of sold out before sort of Father's Day in Sweden, which was which was cool. Um, I don't think the same thing will happen in the UK, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I find it, I suppose I'm seeing it from a very skewed direction in the kind of thing that Josie and me do anyway, because it, it always surprises me at the way that, that you know, that it's a thing we talked about with Sarah Pascoe, I think, a long time ago. It might have been someone else where that, that interesting idea where uh, books written by men are stories for everyone and books written by women are especially for women and yeah, and, and yet there's so many examples of how that's not, you know, it, it's particularly when you look at the shock when people started researching the crime genre and when I presume really horrible, bloody murders where lots of people are eviscerated. That must be a very manly. Oh, oh, really? But I presume really murderous podcasts. Feel, oh, oh, this is. And then you start to worry and think, oh, yeah, this is what happens. Eventually, it's just finding different ways of murdering men. And, uh, <laughs> you know, probably quite right, too. Um, that probably has to get cut out. I mean, no, it doesn't. That's fine, isn't it? <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, I guess I, I do play around with sort of the 
whole male business book genre a bit in this book. I don't know if, if that's obvious, you know, from reading it, but it was certainly something I thought about during the process that I was kind of frustrated about why there's a particular type of, you know, um, you know, the sort of smart thinking section in Waterstones is still very male dominated mm. and i feel that when women are writing a business book or a book on economics it's it's much more sort of you know oh you know telling your personal story or talking about work-life balance or or doing these sort of you know just as you say sort of a book you know more much more particularly directed towards women and i really wanted to do this sort of you know big malcolm gladwell you know entertaining <laughs> type of thing um, but I wanted to do it as if those books were written for women. So I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what are sort of the the characters that always appear in that in that genre. And and I, I literally had this note on my desk where it said quotes by Napoleon, examples <laughs> from military history, stories about Steve Jobs, and stories about sports stars as children. And those were things that I wanted to include because they're always in that genre. And they are all in my book, but I try to twist them. So, you know, when I have a sports, sports star as a child, it's Serena Williams and mm. uh, and so on. But yes, there are Napoleon quotes and, and quite a few examples from military history just to sort of stay within the genre. Oh, I love that so much. I think it's so funny. <laughs> it's really cool. It's true. <laughs> I, I was wondering when, as, as someone who, you know, you've been a financial journalist, I presume, I'm guessing here, that when you were growing up, you had an interest in, in mathematics and, and the STEM subjects and uh, generally. And, and I just wondered whether at what point you as a child started to become really aware of, I mean, especially I think mathematics, the number of mathematicians I know who are women and who, did, but at the same time, I think you know, the, the, there's a lot of presumptions that made. When did you first start to get a sense that, hang on a minute, there's a real skewed idea of what I'm meant to be interested in? Oh, I mean, I actually wanted to be a nun when I was a child. So, <laughs> so that's, uh, I mean, I, my mother was a computer programmer. So I, I mean, I never, I didn't really see that as something male dominated, I guess, for that reason until, you know, everything changed. Um, but certainly economics is, is a male dominated field. And even when I was, was you know, taking economics courses at, courses at university in, in, in Sweden, we had, you know, professors or at least one professor, you know, saying to the whole class that, you know, boys understand these things uh, quicker than girls. Oh, and that was in Sweden not that long ago. And I've, I've you know, I've interviewed, I've had the privilege of interviewing some really big names in in economics and you know i've had my <laughs> share of you know people not taking me seriously because i'm a i'm a woman there was you know one nobel prize winner who i i was interviewing and he just took one look at me and and just said you know so who wrote your questions um so that does certainly happen and it does does exist and but i you know it doesn't really what age sense. was he can i i mean you know how old because i think sometimes we're surprised we always hope it's someone who's about 82 but sometimes it's not well he's a nobel prize winner so yeah he was pretty old wow that's uh yeah it's so rude it's so incredibly rude <laughs> and i guess i was rude about nobel prize winners just then as well um not all of them are old but but many are you know it's a it's a gift to get older yeah it's a gift to get older it is actually um yeah no so i mean and i don't really understand why you know economics in particular has these sort of male 
you know associations with with masculinity i mean it's um it's you know even the word comes from you know oikos which is home right so it could we could really see it as something feminine but i think it's that thing again you know economics is a language that's taken so seriously in our societies and things that are very sort of high status tend to be perceived as male i think as well if it's something theoretical because i see that in mathematics as well you know it's like well we're dealing with all these intellectual concepts that are not relevant to the world you know, that are not kind of rooted in washing or something do you know what i mean it's like people yeah. claiming that sphere for for the yeah, masculine but then well. again like you know programming used to be compared to knitting or or cooking from a recipe and you know and there's a lot of truth mm. in that it is a bit like you know cooking from a recipe and um but but then it was like oh if you if you're good at following instruction which women were thought to be then you're going to be a good programmer and and that's not how we think about it anymore but it's still the same thing so I have to ask now, uh, what was the inspiration to be a nun? Was it uh, a love of God or was it reading one of those books where you, you know, you know, those kids books like there's Enid Blyton, and Mallory Towers and all girls then want to go to public school. Did you read one where you go, wow, a nun's life sounds fantastic in this book? I think it was some combination of, you know, um, you know, there's something, you know, female independence, you know, at least I had some kind of idea that nuns were, you know, they were independent in a way. And also they were clearly sort of saving the world. And those were things that I wanted to do. Um, but yeah. Who were your inspirations when you were when you were growing up in terms of uh, reading? Who were, who were the authors that you uh, would be excited that there would be a new book out? <laughs> I mean, I... I mean, as a, as a child, I was like, obsessed with Winnie the Pooh, like not just like a little bit obsessed, but like, like, like obsessed. Oh. Like, I, um, and I think it still has, you can actually see in, in, in my, my book, Mother of Invention, how Winnie the Pooh has influenced my style to this day, because the way the, the chapter titles are written is actually um, sort of ripped from, from Winnie the Pooh. So it has a huge, it had a huge style influence on, on me, uh, me personally. But I mean, apart from that, I mean, I was a total geek. So it was like fantasy and science fiction and, you know, historical uh, novels and a lot of nonfiction and yeah so that that was me i guess who who were your science fiction who who were the your, your favorites in that genre uh, well it's i mean you know you have to say ursula Le Guin, right hmm. um i mean i still think left hand of darkness is sort of one of the you know greatest novels of you know of of the last century in sort of all all categories and especially and also i mean obviously speaking of of gender and how gender can be something that's non-binary to um, um it's you know i think it's such a such a great work and also she is extremely good at describing snow <laughs> she is so good i was just listening to there's a talking book i forget the name of the uh actress someone beamish who 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 reads all of her essays it's like a huge it's like 60 hours which is only a tiny dent in the number of essays that uh, ursula Le Guin wrote but they are so beautiful and the first essays i'm gonna have to look up the title actually because it's so good um but it's all about the fact that uh she has basically been a man all her life because otherwise she wouldn't exist 
Uh, and it's a really interesting say when she basically and it's hurting historically at the point when she becomes allowed to exist uh, mm. in terms of the language of the world uh, and all wow. these and, and it's such a great uh, I, I love it. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Let me see which one that is. Sorry, I'm, I'm having to use technology and I, another thing about being an alpha male who uses uh, public transport and uh, is a vegetarian. Not very good at technology either. So uh, <laughs> this is really beginning. I'm now the Omega Man, uh, um, which if you've seen the film is pretty bleak. Um, where the hell is it? The uh, Oh, it's The Wave in the Mind. It's a collection called The okay. Wave in the Mind. And uh, it's so beautifully read. And it, and it's just an enormous number of essays. And I just love her. And all of those different things as well. Of just, you know, and she's an anarchist. And she's just like the... And one of those things where every time you think, oh, I've got the cut of a jib, now I've read a couple of Earthsea novels, and then you then you have someone at Left Hand of Darkness, you go, oh, no, I haven't. No, 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 no. This is yeah. it's just yeah. a febrile mind. And, yeah. yeah, fantastic. Is there anyone else you'd recommend as well in in, uh, in the science fiction area? Oh, no, I can't, can't think of sort of anyone, you know, in, in particular. I don't think I read that much science fiction still. It's more, it's more something, you know, grow, growing up that, that I did a lot of. But um, so it's Ursula Le Guin I can come to come to think of, really. But my, my father had a, had a bookstore, really. So I really grew up with, with a lot of books and the... Uh, and the smell of smell of books and you know the trade of books i worked in bookstores for for a long time so it's it's something that's that's close close to me but but then sort of my you know the the great books i i like that's is probably not very not very surprising you know like many people i would say war and peace probably and you know and that is quite boring i guess but but it's uh yeah yeah Fantastic it's not book. boring if you've read it because I've not read it. I mean, this oh, is already you. This no, is it's... the thing, isn't it? Which is many people might mention War and Peace, but the actual percentage of them, and I don't have the stats at hand. See if there's something on Instagram, Josie. They might have some stat about this, uh, which is the number of people who talk about War and Peace and go, "How far did you get into it?" Oh, I've got a little bit. You know, it's like the number of times I've started James Joyce's Ulysses. Oh, I haven't read the... that one. I haven't read that one. But uh, but yeah, War and War and Peace is 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 really one of those that you know. Um, changed my life <laughs> and you just can't can't sort of you'll never forget about these characters they're more real to you than your family and your kids oh, wow <laughs> gosh i wish that i'd read it i feel embarrassed by my lack of um lack of ability to tackle a very long novel and how that's always been the case and i yeah i feel like what would be good and, and that since i found that i've got adhd i do feel some excuse but at the same time it'd be so good if books like that would return to being serialized for people like me and yeah. even if they were like no no they're all different books you just really want to read the series and then my brain would be like fantastic they could make them into instagram infographics maybe <laughs> oh, yeah. i'll be scrolling through yeah, i mean you know be, be amazing it's definitely, I, I feel sad that that's influenced my reading style because I definitely do love a 150 page book and think that that is wonderful and terse and actually it's a shame. I, I was going to ask you what you've been reading recently that you have really enjoyed and, and what your reading habits are at the moment. Oh, what have I been reading recently? Oh, actually, I am reading Dune for the first time. Speaking of science fiction, it's I was really just claiming well. five minutes ago, I don't. I don't read science fiction anymore because I'm too sophisticated. But here I have to admit that that's actually what's what's by my bed at the moment. So it's all about these massive sandworms that going to eat you alive. And yeah, it's quite exciting. Um, um, I, I've been reading that recently. I, I do read quite a lot of 
of nonfiction, obviously, you know, and, uh, you know, I like these sort of big books about the world and the trends of the of the economy and and these types of things. Um, yeah, I liked um, Madeline Miller, you know, with the Greek myths, Circe. Have you had that, her on the no. show? No. Um, yeah. So she basically does a chick lit of, you know, from of Greek myths. Um, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, and they're really good. So I recommend those. That's a great whole kind of area now. With in fact, Natalie Haynes, I, I did some, uh, an event with her this week. You know, you know her book Pandora's Jar, which is looking about the whole reinvention of Pandora's box again to fit into what a, a male-dominated society wants that story to be. And then she wrote um, A Thousand Ships, which is about the Trojan War, but entirely from the female perspective. Mm, yeah, that sounds a bit similar. Yeah, no, I think all that stuff is 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 great because they're you know they're fantastic stories and. Uh, um, you know, and you get them retold in a in a different way, and you know, I, yeah, I, I love I love those. Can I can we end? Just I wanted to just know about it because the book's been out for a while in Sweden as well, and you would have had um, lots of kind of you know different people reacting to it. What has been the most heartwarming uh, reaction? Because I think, as you said, that I can see why people would be very angry, but at the others, it is a, a further call to arms, and I would imagine for a lot of people, an inspiration to investigate even more about how the world has been shaped and why it's been shaped this way and how it can be reshaped. I mean, so there is a chapter in the book which where I tell the story of the invention of the wheeled walker, which was, you know, done by a disabled woman in, in Sweden in the in the nineteen sixties. And it's a an an innovation that has, you know, transformed life for, you know, millions of, of elderly people and uh, around the world and she was almost you know she was completely unknown and and still is but you know I, I have a few pages on her and and there are a couple of uh ladies in older ladies in in the Swedish town of Vesteros who who were really passionate about telling her stories and I her story and I interviewed them and the fact that I can now go back go back to these ladies and you know and say that you know this book is is going to be translated and you know it's already out in English it's coming out in South Korea and Germany and Italy and and they find that really really cool and that is quite heartwarming yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah, a best-selling book, and this is now. Yeah, that's 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 magnificent. Have you working on anything else? Uh... Um, not at the moment. I will. I will start this this autumn, and I'm quite excited about it. I'm I'm one of these authors who really love the the actual sort of task of of writing and of writing the book. So I, I really. I mean, it's it's nice to talk about your books with nice people like like you two, obviously, but. <laughs> But uh, but writing them is, is even better. Sorry. I, I should tell you, by the way, that Josie wrote all my questions. <laughs> uh, were, uh, oh, I'd love it if I had. <laughs> it seemed like I still had a brain brain in my head as opposed oh, to Behind the Fog. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for joining. It's a fantastic book. I really, uh, I, 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 it was, it's one of the, it, it's just because the moment you read a book like this, you, you do start to go, there's so many more stones that I need to lift up and look underneath and find out what is going on there. If you see what I mean, there's just so many uh, you know, things that I, I knew nothing about and, and would and found so remarkable uh, the number of walls that are built around you know, and and at times where you would imagine things would would have been moving at a greater speed. So it's it's a, it's a it's a brilliant book. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for speaking to us. It, thank you. Yeah, it's really fantastic. That you yeah, thank you. 
Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Do go out and get Katrine's book. It is Mother of Invention. It is out now. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the place to go to support us. Rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Back next week with another new episode. I believe our guest next week will be our friend Izzy Sooty. Until then, have a great week. Stay safe. See you soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.